Today we're going to do, we're actually going to do a couple things. We're going to start with an introduction to the Gospels. I was thinking about just the whole class being an introduction to the Gospels, and I thought, we've had three weeks of introduction. We need to get to the actual text. So we're going to start with some basic introduction stuff and then cover some stuff I don't like to cover because it's all from the liberals. And so we're going to have to cover that, and then we'll get into the Gospel of Matthew today. And I have a handout for you on the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll start that today, we'll probably finish it either next week or the week after. Okay? Sound, sound fair? All right, let's talk about the Gospels. Um, the Gospels, as you probably already know, are an important part of your New Testament. They comprise 48% of your New Testament. I was just playing around last night, and I grabbed my Bible, and I went to Matthew 1.1, and I went to the end of John, and I just grabbed all the pages and held them. And I did the rest with the rest of the New Testament. And it's right about half of your New Testament is the Gospels. Um, they are the longest books in the New Testament. They are longer than all the other books. Even the shortest of the Gospels, Mark, is actually longer than the book of Revelation. And it's the shortest one of the Gospels. It, it beats Psalms? No, in the New Testament. Oh, New Testament. Oh, we got limits. <laughs> this is New Testament well, survey. Welcome so, welcome to the New Testament survey class. <laughs> <laughs> but while they are long, and while they do comprise most or a good portion of the New Testament, they are also marked by brevity. They're also very, very short. Grab your Bibles, go over to John chapter 20, and I want to show you the brevity here, because I know that seems contrary. They're long, they comprise most of the New Testament, but they're short. How can we say that? In John chapter 20, John kind of explains what we mean here. And I need someone who's willing to read John 20 verse uh, 30. Who would like to read that? Greg? Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Many other signs. John is giving evidence that Jesus is God, and he points to the signs that Jesus performed, the miracles that Jesus performed. And he says there are other signs that were done that I didn't write about, that I didn't include in my gospel, that I cut out. I could have put them in there, but I didn't. But it's not just signs and wonders that he's talking about. John 21, verse 25. Uh, Lance, would you read that? 2135? Uh, 25, excuse me. Yep. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So, just be thankful. The gospel writers were short and brief in their descriptions. <laughs> You can read through your New Testament in less than a few hours. But they had to be brief. One, because, well, they'd be writing for their entire life and they'd probably never finish it all. But they also had to be brief because they were likely writing on papyrus scrolls. Now, we don't use scrolls today, thank goodness. But these scrolls were about 30 feet long. And you'd roll them up and then you'd unroll a portion and then you'd write on it roll this side up and roll this side right on it, right? And you just keep going. You're writing blocks. And you would want to fit every, all of your work onto one scroll. Why would you want to get your entire book onto that one scroll? Because it only fit, fit in the shelf in that properly? No, because you only had one roll. Okay, so you had one roll, you only had enough space for one scroll. It would be separated over time. Yeah, if you had two scrolls, half your work would turn up missing. And people would only get a copy of one, or one part of it. And so you try to fit it all into one scroll, so that way, if they get the one scroll, they have it. Writing material is also extremely expensive. You had to either make it or buy it. And these papyrus scrolls, you'd have to strip the papyrus, lay it out flat, hammer it together, and then do that for individual sheets, and then uh, essentially glue them all together and hammering them out yourself. It took a lot of time, or it was really expensive to get. And so you didn't want to waste it, and you were very judicious with your use of the space that you had. Okay, so why four Gospels? Even number. 
Even, even number. Okay, there, there's one reason. We want to keep it even. Um, why four Gospels? Well, one reason is it demonstrates the fascination with the life of Christ. People in that day were very interested in who Christ is and what his life was like. After the death of Christ, people wanted to know what was his life like? What were the miracles that he did? What was the resurrection like? Did he look the same after he was resurrected as he did before? They had all these questions about who Christ is, and they all wanted to know. And so the Gospel writers began writing so that people could learn about who Christ is. You can see this in Luke chapter 1, the opening part of Luke. Luke 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning who are eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Yeah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Right. That's what I thought. My thought on the, why we have four different books is God has proven that he, A, He is God, but B, you got four different perspectives, but they match perfectly. Yep, we're getting there. Oh, okay. You're, you're, you're like thunder. three steps ahead of me. I've been studying. Oh, I see that. That's no, good. Have you haven't been studying? No, I haven't. So, Luke writes here, look, I... I know other gospel writers are writing, but I'm going to go and compile all the information I can find, and I'm going to write it and send it to you, Theophilus. The assumption is Theophilus is interested in the life of Christ, and he's writing this information for his friend, right? Same thing with Acts. He's like, in my former account, Theophilus. Yeah. So he wrote Acts after he wrote this gospel. Right, right. Why four gospels? demonstrates the importance of the life of Christ for the Christian. Imagine trying to read your New Testament without the Gospel accounts. Imagine trying to understand what Paul is talking about if you don't know anything about the life of Christ. You need to know what occurred in the Gospels. Uh, D. Edmund Hebert, if you guys don't know who Hebert is, I'm going to reference him quite a bit. And when we get into his commentaries, I'm going to refer you to those commentaries. He is absolutely outstanding. D. Edmund Hebert said this, The Gospels were placed at the beginning of the New Testament, not because the early church thought that they were written first, because it was clearly recognized that they constitute the very foundation of the Christian faith. So not only did they put it at the front end of your New Testament, but they are central to your Christian faith. And by putting it at the front end, they're indicating to you, you need to know what's in these. These are vital to the Christian life. Uh, final answer to the question, why for? Each gospel displays Christ in a unique way suited for the recipients. Anybody know the different ways the gospel writers? Servant. Which Son. one is servant? King. Messiah. Yeah, um, servant is Mark. Matthew is... Uh, Messiah. Messiah. Messiah or yes. king. There you go. Luke is... Man, yeah, he's a man. And John is, John's like different than all the other three uh-huh. in that he's not looking to give you a picture of the life so much as the works, the proof that he is God. There you go. Yeah. So all of them were writing for different reasons, and they all wrote to a specific audience for a specific purpose. John was trying to prove that Jesus is God. Matthew was trying to prove that Jesus is the king. We'll look at that today. They all had their own reasons for writing. And by looking at all four Gospels, all four independent accounts, what you get is you get a picture of Christ like a diamond. And each Gospel turns Christ and you get to see Him from a different angle. Now, since they're all writing about the same person, doesn't it make sense that their accounts would be very similar? When they write about the same stories or the same events, that their accounts of those events would be, well, the same? virtually the same? That's going to come back in a minute. Well, that'll be important. Edmund Hebert again. The four portraits of Jesus Christ presented in the four Gospels 
give a full-orbed picture of his unique person and mission. There are four Gospels, and what's interesting is there are four Gospels that we have. Does that mean there were never any other Gospels written? There were other, other Gospels written. But if you go back into the church history, only these four are ever recognized by the early church. When you go through and find the early lists of the canon, you will not find any other Gospels listed other than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that goes all the way back to the Muratorian canon of 170. Yes? You said there's other Gospels where they were written by other uh, apostles? No. There you go. There you go, yeah. So when we talked about canonicity, a lot of these other Gospels were written after the fact. They were written in the 100s or the 200s. And they were written by people who were not the apostles, but they tried to claim to be the apostles. So you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas. Not actually written by Thomas. Thomas was long dead when it was written. But it's not actually part of the Gospels. They were, there were other Gospels written, but never recognized or accepted as being canonical. Who remembers from last time? What was that, two weeks ago? What makes a book canonical? It has to be in order. Okay. That's not the answer. Hey, he, he tried. What's the definition of canonical? Canonical? Yeah. It's part of the rule, it's part of the standard. What makes something scripture? Let's ask it that oh, way. Written by an apostle. Okay. Is it? Is that it? One of them? They have to rec recognized by someone as being written. Recognize. By, had to be recognized. Yeah. What? What did they look for? What was the one thing that determined whether or not it was canonical? Truth. <laughs> okay. Am I I'm, getting close? No. Kind of. Doctor. Uh, Air Force pilot extraordinary. <laughs> he, he might know. I'm beyond that. What do all the books of the Bible have in common? They agree with each other. They're inspired by God. There we go. That's what I was looking for. They're inspired. They're all written by God. They're canonical because they are inspired. The church merely recognized the inspiration of those books. Right? They were canonical the moment they were inspired. <coughs> These books were the only ones who were recognized as being inspired. And you can go back to guys like Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a bishop writing around 180. Here's what he said. He who has manifested men has given us the gospel under four aspects, but bound together by one spirit. Four gospels. Go into the early church and look at all the lists. You will find the same four gospels listed over and over and over again. The same four gospels you currently have in your Bibles. Okay, but this is where the liberals show up. That's the part that no one likes to talk about. How many of you have heard of the synoptic problem? Got a couple head nods. The P gospel. Yeah, Q. This way was a Q. Yeah, you, you got it. Yeah, there's another one. There's a, an expanded version that has P in it. I think there's one that has M. But we're not going to talk about those. We'll just talk about Q today. So, yeah. Synoptic problem. It first arrived in the 18th century, and it was developed by German scholars. That's a long time for them to, to develop. Yeah. Think about it. 1,800 yeah. years after Christ lived, that's when it came up? Not like 100 or 200? Shows up here. This wasn't a problem before the 18th century. Let's put it that way. Nobody viewed this as being a problem before the 18th century, before these scholars came around. What's the basic premise of the Synoptic Gospel? Here it is. The three authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were dependent upon one another in, miss, in a missing document called Q. Now, I only listed Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I didn't list John because John is not considered to be a Synoptic Gospel. John adds other information that other writers don't have. And so they just look at these three as being synoptic gospels. And the claim is that they are not independent witnesses. Matthew was dependent upon other sources for his information. Ergo, Matthew is not an eyewitness. 
the tax collector who left his booth and followed Jesus for the rest of his life? According to them, he didn't write the book. Oh, I thought you were teaching that as truth. I was... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me breathe. I, <laughs> I, I tried... <laughs> I, I tried to make that clear. This was the liberal theologian. It's okay. not me. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Synoptic, oh man, I forgot what, where the word comes from, but it basically means they go together and they teach the same thing or they explain the same things. Um, these three, if you go through and you look at a harmony of the Gospels, a lot of the stories that you find in Mark, you'll find in Matthew and Luke. And it is that similarity that these scholars point to as evidence that they were copying one another. Well, the only way these could be the same or have the same material is if they're borrowing from each other or they're borrowing from another document. Question. Yes. So you got four Gospels, and they all match. My question is, where exactly were each four written? Do we know? We'll talk about that as we get to each one. Okay. Some of them we can guess on where they were when they were, were written, but we don't actually know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that they were uh, written in different areas. Which yeah. makes it even more important because yeah. now you you have distance and of course they didn't have a telephone so they have to and, and yet it's all perfectly matches yeah so yes I got a definition of synoptic sure Merriam-Webster says it's affording a general view of a whole manifesting or characterized by comprehensiveness or breadth of view presenting or taking the same common view. And that's yeah. specifically often capitalized of or relating to the first three Gospels of the New Testament. Yeah. So, Thank you. you. Wonderful. So all of these are considered to be independent witnesses. So where do they come up with this idea that they were dependent upon one another? This is a form of higher criticism called source criticism. Source criticism just makes assumptions about the text. All higher criticism starts with basic assumptions. And one of the assumptions is the miraculous is not true. And the other assumption is if these Gospels match each other in what they say, that means they must be copies of each other. The writers were all together? Uh, not when they wrote it, no. No, no, I mean, but I mean, during Christ, Christ, when Christ was here, were they not all together? Not necessarily. Mark uh, wrote later, and he got his information from Peter. Oh, okay. So, um, so, so I guess he's asking, were all the 12 apostles all there at the time for all of these events? Yes, the, the apostles were. Yeah. But two of the writers of the Gospels are not apostles, they're just connected to apostles. Right, and they get their information from the apostles. Um, but they saw Jesus, right? The so, apostles did, yes. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yes. To me, it just doesn't matter. They're apostles. Yeah. So, Mark is the shortest one. And they look at Mark and they say, okay, Mark is the shortest one. And Matthew contains much of the information out of Mark. And Luke contains a lot of the information out of Mark. Therefore, Matthew and Luke must have gotten their information from Mark. Oh, I can see where this is going. No evidence for it. They make the assumption and then they claim that's true. That's like saying four people saw an event and four people wrote about the event and therefore they must have conspired to write right. about the event that they saw. Right. It's ridiculous. It... it it is. But these are, these are assertions made without evidence based off assumptions made before they actually look at the text. Therefore, they can't be independent witnesses. Um, I'm going to show you a chart. This is confusing, I know. Um, we'll get to the stuff at the top in a minute. Here's this unknown document, which we don't have any copies of which there's no record of anywhere, they call it Q. Matthew gets information from Q, and he gets information from Mark. 
But Matthew is not the actual Apostle Matthew. Matthew is someone else that came by later. And he copies parts of Mark, and he copies from Q. Luke does the same thing. He copies from Mark, and he copies from Q. But these are not the Apostles, according to this theory. This is someone else. Some people put the writing of Matthew as late as the mid-2nd century. Long after the apostles are dead. Where is this? Nobody knows. Where did it come from? Nobody knows. What was in it? Nobody knows. Who wrote it? Nobody knows. It's completely fabricated. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. And when you read through New Testament commentaries, what you'll find is they'll say something like this. The evangelist here is doing this. When they call the gospel writer an evan- the evangelist, they're not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They're talking about this random, unknown person who compiled the information later. This is a denial of the inspiration of the text. It's intended to undermine the authority of the text and tell you that the text that you have, you can't trust. Now, what is this Aramaic Logia book of Matthew? The name there is Papias. Anybody heard of the name Papias? Papias was an early church father. He was actually a premillennialist. Papias wrote around 95 to 110. Church history says he was a personal friend and a disciple of the Apostle John. John wrote the book of Revelation right around 95. Irenaeus actually says he was a hearer of John. You're, you look confused. Mm-hmm. So, if he's exiled, how many friends can he have? Uh, church history says he probably returned after his exile and died in Ephesus. Okay. Um, I don't know that I know the exact date of when he was exiled, but even Irenaeus says uh, he, he, Papias was a disciple. And another guy named Polycarp was also a disciple of John. Polycarp was executed by the Romans. Now, here's the thing. We don't have any copies of his writings. None. We don't have the originals of his writings. We don't have copies of his writings. We know about his writings only because certain church fathers quote him. Guys like Asubius of Caesarea and Irenaeus quote him. And I think Origen quotes him as well. But he makes a little statement that says that Matthew wrote his... Well, I'm going to show you instead of telling you. This looks a little long, but bear with me. Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him, but afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Where did Mark get his information? According to Papias. He got it from Peter. Peter explained what happened. Pat, uh, Mark wrote it down and tried to be as accurate as he could with that information. Do you hear any mention of Q? Do you hear any dependence on another writer? Mark got his information from Peter. Papias goes on. Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them, for of one thing he took a special care not to omit anything he had heard and not to put anything fictitious into the statement. Matthew put together the oracles in the Hebrew language and each one interpreted them as best as he could. And it is that last little phrase, Matthew put together the oracles in the Hebrew language and each one interpreted them as best he could. I left out of the Lord because that was not in his writing. That's the assumption that is made. When Papias says oracles, they assume he is referring to his gospel. And they assume that the book of Matthew was originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic. They don't know which one because it just says dialect. And the dialect there could be Aramaic or it could be Hebrew. There's not a whole lot of difference between the two. If you learn Hebrew, you can learn Aramaic in like one semester. 
So they make the assumption that this must be referring to the Gospel of Matthew. Why is that important to you? Because the Gospel of Matthew that you have was written in Greek. Ergo, the Gospel that you have was a translation made by someone other than Matthew, i.e. not inspired. Do you see what a vicious attack this is? I can see Satan working hard for eternity on this one. This is this is a this is an attack on the inspiration of the text. That's right. This is intended to make sure that you do not trust what the text says. He wrote an oracle. The text does not say he wrote the Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew or in Aramaic. And when the early church quotes the Gospel of Matthew, they never quote a Hebrew text or an Aramaic text. They always quote from the Greek text that you currently have. So where did he get this information? Papias? Yeah. We have no idea. Okay, that's... that's I mean, Sounds like the Book of Mormons to me. the Hebrew language. Yeah. But it was all... Everything was Greek because that was the lingua franca at the time. Right. Everybody spoke it. Yeah. So he writes this book and interjects all his personal thoughts and drives it a different way. Yeah. I don't know what Papias... We're not even sure what Papias meant here. He doesn't explain what the oracles are. He doesn't explain what the dialect is. And if you go through and read scholarship, they sit there and argue about what does he mean by dialect. Does this talk about an actual language? Does this talk about this? Or They have no idea what he actually means. Yes, sir? So, like you said, even the early church was quoting the Gospel of Matthew in the Greek, the, the actual Gospel. So... Which, like you said, that totally blows us out. Well, what, how does something like this gain traction? That, I guess is that's my what, question. Like, what exactly? How does how does that even? Well, why are we still talking about this almost two thousand years later? As if it's the, you know, the, how, I just yeah. Don't know how that becomes the answer is reasonable. in modern day, if you want your commentary to be accepted or published, you have to embrace this. If you want to excel in academia, you have to embrace this. This is what scholarship believes. This first started in the 18th century. By the beginning of the 20th century, this was everywhere in Christian scholarship. And if you read commentaries today, you will read this. This is why I have to go over it with you. Because if you're going to read a commentary, you're going to run into people talking about Q and the redactor or the editor or the evangelist. You're going to run into it, and you just need to understand it's all based on a priori assumptions, assumptions made without evidence. There's no evidence for this. And Edmund Hebert actually says that. He says, There is no objective evidence that such Aramaic Gospels ever existed. The view that our Gospels were originally written in Aramaic and later translated into Greek is quite unacceptable. There's no evidence. There's no manuscripts for it. There's no copies of it. No one ever quotes from it. Anathema. I mean, it's... This is why I say, if you find Hebert, read him. He's wonderful. Yes, sir. I think what's more curious is of people that <clears throat> do not believe in Christ, do not want to accept it, there's not a copy of it, there's not another Christ, and they're just throwing stuff out there just to stir the pot. Yeah. And and you can't, you can't duplicate Christ. So, yeah. they, they're trying to come up with something. A lot of the big name commentaries that you know of, Douglas Moo, D.A. Carson, R.T. France, embrace this, and they put it in their commentaries. Um, I showed you this chart earlier. Um, I'd like to make it a little bit more accurate. So I'm going to update. This actually comes from Dr. Farnell. But here's a more accurate representation of how these uh, came together. They each wrote their own independent text. All of this is based off, well, they're too similar. And so we have to find a way to try to explain it that other than 
it's inspired. Four independent, well, here, three independent witnesses. Questions there? I don't have a question, but I got a comment because I think in Timothy, they, they warned the church about this kind of stuff. Yeah. The church was warned, yeah, yeah, over and over again. And it says a lot that this showed up in the 18th century rather than, you know, in the second century. Yeah, Yeah. this was not a problem before the 18th century. Nobody questioned who wrote Matthew, and we're going to talk about the Gospel of Matthew here right now. Um, Would you take one and pass? I have handouts today, because we're going to talk about Matthew. Somebody's got jokes this morning. I'm feeling good. I've been sick for five straight days, dude. All right. So as the handout comes to you, um, don't panic. We're not going to try to squeeze all of this into the 20-some-odd minutes we have remaining. But I do want to let you know about it. Um, Down at the bottom, you'll see it says major themes. Uh, These come from Dr. Keith Essex. These are not all the themes of Matthew, but I've given you quite a few along with verses. So if you would like to go home and study more on Matthew, you'll have the verses to look at, and you won't have to guess on where it comes from. Um, I do have a commentary recommendation down there, which is MacArthur's commentary. Which page? On the back. I did not include some of the others that... Are useful just because I know some of those others embrace this source criticism. That I, so, Matthew Henry is good. He's good. Uh, there's another guy named Matthew Poole who I found to be helpful. He's a little short, but it's good. Um, Calvin is good, but as far as modern commentaries, I think MacArthur would be a great place to start. All right, let's talk about the Gospel of Matthew. Let's first talk about the evidence for who wrote the book of Matthew. External evidence for who wrote it. Well, the Apostle Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. Um, How do we know that? How do we know that since the book is anonymous? Nowhere in the Gospel of Matthew does he say, I am Matthew and I'm writing this. So how do we know it was the Apostle Matthew. It's easy to say it was the Apostle Matthew, but how do we know that? What evidence do we have of that? We have evidence in that the Gospel of Matthew has always been given this title, the Gospel according to Matthew. This is how the church has always referred to this book. It was never referred to as anything other than this. And the title appears in history, if you go back and look at manuscripts, the title for this appears as early as 125. Everybody, from the very beginning, has ascribed this book to Matthew. And it appears on every Greek manuscript that we have of the book of Matthew. The unanimous witness of the church is that this book was written by Matthew. Now, that's kind of unlikely that somebody would have faked Matthew's name. You know, there's like the Gospel of Thomas. It wasn't actually written by Thomas. Why would you put your na- why would you put somebody else's name on your work? Because you weren't an apostle. Because you weren't an apostle? Let's say today, if I if I wrote a book and I put John MacArthur's name on it as the author. Yeah. You, yep. What do you say? Gain credibility. Gain credibility. Yeah, that's what I was saying. People know John MacArthur. And I can get my book sold, I can get my book published, my ideas out there by saying that I'm somebody that I'm not. Now, here's the question. Why would you use Matthew's name? Matthew is one of the least known apostles. In the early church, very few people knew about him. He's mentioned only a few times in the gospel accounts. And those mentions, as we'll see, are just naming him as an apostle and describing his conversion. And outside of that, we know nothing about him as far as what he did. So why would somebody lie and claim to be Matthew when they could have said, hey, I'm Peter, who everybody knows, or hey, I'm Paul, who everybody knows? Even Thomas would be a better guy to claim, because everybody knows who Thomas is. 
nobody knew who Matthew was. He wasn't a popular apostle. And so to claim that somebody was lying here and they were using his name to attract attention is kind of silly. They wouldn't have used his name. Um, Let's look at the internal evidence. I, I mentioned this just a moment ago. There are four lists of the apostles in the New Testament. Mark 3.16, Luke 6.14, and Acts 1.13. And in every single one of them, Matthew is listed in the seventh or eighth position. Now, anybody see a problem with this slide? There's only three. R.C. Sproul once says, there, there are three kinds of people. Those who can count, and those who can't. Okay. But there is a, a, a fourth reference here, and it's in Matthew 10, verses 2 through 4. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. He only, he only defined two people, uh-huh. himself and Judas. Uh-huh. Everybody else, he just he gave, he gave family reference, sons of Zebedee. Mm-hmm. But he goes, Matthew, the tax collector. Yep. Good eye. Good eye. He calls him Matthew, the tax collector. This is the only place. No, that's good. This is the only place where Matthew's name is listed in one of the lists, and he is called a tax collector. Which was a pejorative. Yeah. That was, and you say, I'm the lowest. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, less, less able to uh, uh, believe. Yeah. Mark, Luke, and John would not describe him like this in the list. They would not call him an apostle and then list him as a tax collector. And that also doesn't work because Matthew's writing to Jews. Do you think someone who would read this would want to read it and say, oh, the author of this is a tax collector? Publicans were despised. You were a traitor. This is not the kind of information you would put out if you're trying to win friends and influence people. <laughs> it's got to be the Nancy Pelosi of the time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> I'm leaving that alone. So he gives information that would put him in a negative light. And generally speaking, when an author is willing to put themselves in a general in a negative light like that, you can generally trust what they're saying. That's just a general rule. Why would Matthew do that, though? If his purpose is to get people to believe on Jesus, why would he diminish himself like that? Because he believed in Jesus and he knew who he was and how Jesus saved him from the tax-collecting traitor that he was. Yeah. He's the recipient of pure grace. Absolutely. And the tax We're going to talk about that because there's evidence that the person who wrote Matthew was a tax collector and had a very financial mind. And he, he noticed things that other people just didn't. And he notes things in his gospel that other people just didn't. So let's talk. He was a tax collector. Um, there's a couple. These are on your handout. Matthew 9, 9 and 10. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, notice in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. This is the story that Matthew gives of his own conversion. Jesus comes up, finds him sitting in the tax booth. He says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows. And the other gospel accounts confirm the story. Now, that was a money-making scheme to be a tax collector. To get up and leave your tax booth is to give up the job. Somebody else will get the position. He walked away literally from everything. So here, he's called Matthew. And I do want to note, this will come back later, after the conversion, they go to the house and they have a banquet. That'll come back in a minute. 
He was also a tax collector known as Levi, Mark 2.14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Now, there are some who say, well, this must be two different people. No, it's not two different people. It's the same guy, same story, same events. And right after this, it also describes going to a house. So why have two names? That was common. Mm -hmm. That was common back then. There were a lot of people who had... It was, you know... You know well, I, I, know, I know Peter was named by Christ, but mm -hmm. other people had this guy, also known as this guy. Right. And we don't actually know the reason he has two names. Matthew, the name, it means a gift from God. And it's assumed that this was a name that was later given to him or that he took on. Levi is a Hebrew name yeah. in, the, in the strongest of tradition. Yeah. So this may be the name, Matthew may be the name that Christ gave him. Like he renamed Peter and he renamed Paul. But we don't actually know. So, Mark 2, we get Levi, also Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, and he follows Jesus. Remember how in Matthew they said, he said that they went to the house? Look at what Mark says. Uh, right in the middle here. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with jesus and his disciples for there were many of them and they were following him who does his house refer to jesus is because the son of man has no place to rest his head they so, went to matthew's house matthew omits this information this would have been prime information if you just wanted to get famous and you were just going to borrow Matthew's name, this is the kind of information that you would include in your gospel. Matthew omits it. He doesn't want to be famous. He doesn't want himself to be the, the picture of the story. He wants Christ to be the picture of the story. And so he omits this and just says, we went to the house and we had a party. But Mark clearly indicates that it went to, they went to his house. It was... Mark's house. Luke affirms the same thing. Luke is more explicit. You said Mark's house. Oops. Matthew's house. Thank you. Awesome. You guys are awake. Uh, Luke 5, 27. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. Yes. And the reason for that is those were his only friends. Probably. Yep. Tax collectors. Tax collectors and sinners. Yep. That's, that's how he made his living. And, 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 and so he, he wanted friends. to show his friends what he yep. just found. And he now has a new friend, a guy named Jesus, and he invites him over and he celebrates his conversion by throwing a banquet for Jesus. And Matthew does not include that information because he doesn't want to elevate himself. Instead, he just calls himself a tax collector and says, we went to the house and had a reception. But it was his house, Matthew's house. His writing also reveals he's acquainted with finances. He notices things and says things that you would expect a tax collector to say. Um, when the disciples questioned about paying taxes to Caesar... This is in Matthew twenty-two nineteen. He uses a term that none of the other accounts use. Matthew twenty-two nineteen. He says, "Show, whoa. hey, come on." He says, "Show me the coin used for the poll tax." And they brought him a denarius. The term he uses here for coin is a word that refers to tribute money. It's a technical term. None of the other gospel accounts use this term. They all use that final term, a denarius, referring to a single day's wage. Only Matthew uses this term. Only Matthew uh, records Peter being questioned about paying the half-shackled temple tax. Leave it to the tax collector to record that. Yeah. 
Leave it to the former IRS agent to point out that someone was being questioned about their taxes. And only Matthew records the large sums of money owed by the unforgiving servant. This is what you would expect from a tax collector. A guy with a financial mind. This is how you would expect him to behave. Okay, so who is this guy, Matthew? What do we know about him? Well, this is a short list. Um, he's the son of a guy named Alphaeus. We saw that in Mark 2.14. Now, there is another apostle who is also named as the son of Alphaeus. I read it earlier. Anybody remember? James. Got a good memory. No, no, I've, read, I've read this before. Okay. James, the son of Alphaeus. There's no evidence that these two are related, that this is the same guy. It's just two people who both their dads have the same, same name, which is not unusual. Um, he was likely very wealthy. We know that because he was throwing a banquet. We also know that because he was a tax collector. Um, you guys know how they did tax collection at that day? I think I do. Yeah. <laughs> Extortion was part of it. Um, they used the Roman cohort to enforce, and they said, here's what's legal. Give me this. And then they'd take a little off the top. And They had a certain amount that they were required to give to Caesar. Anything over that is what they kept for themselves. And they could use the Roman soldiers there to enforce their taxes. And there was no written tax code. They assessed you based on how you looked and what you had on you. And they assessed the tax that they viewed as being appropriate. No wonder they were despised by their friends. And they got wealthy doing it. Other than his calling, I mentioned this earlier, this is the only place he's mentioned. He's in the list and in his calling. No other mentions are made of him. The last mention of Matthew is at, in Acts 1, verse 13, at the ascension of Christ. We don't know anything else after that. Even his death is shrouded in mystery. There are some traditions that say he did all sorts of wonderful, miraculous things in ministry. Those are apocryphal texts. We don't know that we can trust them. There are people who say he was martyred. May have happened. But we can't prove it. Very little is known about the person of Matthew. After, once you get out of the New Testament. So where was he writing from? Oh my goodness, I need to speed up. We don't know for sure. It seems likely that he was outside of Palestine, that he was outside of Israel, because he wrote in Greek. But we also know he was writing to Jews. Greek was the lingua franca of the world. Aramaic was probably very common within Israel. And so he wrote in Greek so he can get it out to Jews living outside of Israel. I just said that. Um, so he was likely in a location with a high Jewish population. Some estimates or some people believe it was Antioch in Syria, which had a high Jewish population, and they also spoke Greek. But again, they don't know for certain the location that he was writing from. When was it written? Um, likely sometime after the events he's describing, and by sometime probably a decade or more. Why do we say that? Because he uses this reference to this day, Matthew 27, 8 and 28, 15. 27, 8 is the story of the death of Judas. And where he died is called the Field of Blood. And Matthew says it maintains that name to this day. Um, 28, 15, Roman soldiers were paid to lie about the resurrection of Christ. And it says that story prevails among the Jews to this day. And the idea there being there's been some time that's passed since the event, and then the story still is there. So, it was likely some time after. But it also reveals that this was probably before 70 AD. He probably wrote before 70 AD. Why? What's significant about 70 AD? It makes him alive. No, that's, no it's... The, the, Rome, Rome came and destroyed... Everything going on in Israel, yeah. That's when they that's when they tore the temple down and, and scattered all the Jews. Yeah, killed 
the ones that they didn't scatter. Yeah, they killed, I think Josephus says, something like a million Jews and deported everybody else. It's unlikely that Matthew would have been writing about the field of blood and talking about the, the stories that prevail among Jews when all of them are dispersed. And not have talked about that event. Right. That would have been like cataclysmic. Right. He would have written about that. Right. So we have a time frame somewhere between the death of Christ and 70 AD. Most people, I think, um, the 40s and 50s seems best. Mark, the dating is a little bit more firm. It's in the 60s. I think Matthew wrote first. And so somewhere between the 40s and 50s would be the time of his writing. Um, what's the purpose of the book? This is on your handout. Jesus was the promised Messiah and Israel's king who will establish the kingdom in the future despite Israel's past rejection of him. The Old Testament is full of prophecies about a king of Israel and a coming king. The book of Judges ends with this phrase, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You can go all the way back to Matthew, not Matthew, Genesis 1, when he says, Let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. The term he uses, mashal, speaks of ruling as a king. All the way from Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament, you have this promise of a king. You get to 1 Samuel, they want a king. Who do they bring? Saul. Saul is actually told, if you will obey and if you'll do what I say, I'll preserve your kingdom and your kingdom will last. Saul obviously doesn't obey and what does Samuel tell him? Your kingdom is being removed. It will no longer remain forever. David is brought and he becomes king and he's given the same promise. But he's given a promise and a covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And that promise is one of your descendants will sit on your throne and he will reign eternally from your throne. That's the Davidic covenant. It's a promise from God that the Messiah would reign as king on David's throne. Where was David's throne? In Jerusalem. That's important for eschatology. Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah from the... From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago and from the days of eternity. This coming king will come out of Bethlehem, and he'll be of the tribe of Judah. Matthew 2, verse 1, Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod. He includes that information so that the Jews know he fits the description. Uh, Luke 1, 31 through 33 gives us some information here that's helpful. Luke 1, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will, be no, will have no end. There's the angel specifically saying, the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled in this person, Jesus. Jesus will reign on David's throne. He is the expecting king. And Matthew is going to prove that Jesus is the king. Matthew 1.1, he starts in the genealogy. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You notice he put those covenants out of order? Abraham came first. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that through Israel, God would bless all nations? Yes. Well, that's the way they did it. They proved their lineage starting with your father and then working backwards. Right. Some did. Yeah. 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 Here, emphasis. he emphasizes the Davidic covenant. And if you go through the rest of the genealogy, you'll see that David is emphasized over and over and over again. Matthew 1, verse 6, Jesse was the father of David, the king. Jump down to verse 17. David is made central in the whole genealogy. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. We're not going to go and talk about the 14 generations. That's a whole another basket. Uh, in verse 20, when the angel appears to Joseph, 
the, the angel says to Joseph, and he calls him son of David. Jesus being the son of David proves that he has a legal right to be king. It proves he's a legal heir to the throne. Matthew 2. We read the first part of this. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Magi showed up from the east to worship the new king. And the answer they got was Bethlehem because everybody knew he was supposed to come from Bethlehem. Yep. Now what's interesting is these guys traveled, who knows, hundreds of miles. Herod, the supposed king who wanted to go meet Jesus, was six miles away and never showed up. Could have showed up, didn't. And when you go through the book of Matthew, just look at all the times where he calls him the son of David. Look at all the times in the book of Matthew where people call him the king of the Jews. Matthew 21, 4 through 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Anybody know what's going on here? That's the, when he triumphal back. entry. Yeah. That's the triumphal entry. Yeah. And Matthew points back to Zechariah 9, 9 that says the Messiah, the reigning king, will enter into the city on a donkey. Right, and he did. And he did. And Matthew quotes Zechariah. That's what this is. It's a quote from Zechariah. And as he's making his way through the city, what are the people shouting? Hosanna in the highest. Son of David. Son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. To the descendant of David who would reign as king. Even Roman soldiers called Jesus the king of the Jews. Matthew 27, 27 through 29. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They had no idea just how accurate their description was. Even though they were trying to mock him. It's still an accurate description. The sign that they nailed over his head on the cross, how did Pilate describe him? This is the king of the Jews. Even the Roman governors recognized he was the king of the Jews. Even the chief priests recognized he was the king. Matthew 27, 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Over and over and over again, he is described as the king of the Jews. We'll have to end there because we're gonna we're out of time. All right, any questions? Yes. You just barely mentioned the fourteen generations, so we're not gonna open it back. Is there some controversy around that? Uh, there's controversy only because people aren't really sure why he said that, because there weren't actually fourteen generations. Um, th- that that actually skips over quite a few generations which isn't unusual yeah so he's 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 doing that to make a point and the question is what point is he making and there's some controversy there so yeah we'll we'll try um but yeah that's one of those basket of worms back to uh acts 113 you mentioned where they name the disciples it says philip and thomas bartholomew and matthew comma James, the son of Alphaeus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the whole Alphaeus thing, James is listed as the son of Alphaeus, whereas Luke doesn't mention Matthew's. Yeah. Son. So, the, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It, some, they all include information that they think is relevant to the point they want to make, and so some of them leave that information out. You would think Luke would have said if they were related. <laughs> Matthew and James, the sons of... Yeah, like like James and John, the sons of right. Zebedee, sons right? Of sons of Zebedee, yeah. Good, good point. good point. All right, well, it's 10.02, so let's pray real quick and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for 
uh, his life, his ministry, his death, the, the sacrifice that he made for us. We thank you that you have preserved uh, that witness and that life for us in the Gospels. And we just ask that you would help us to come to uh, know them better, to learn them, and to let them affect our lives and our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.